to Leonardo de la Fe, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Happy St. Petronius Day. Hey, happy St. Petronius Day, Joshua. Yeah. And to all of our Bolognese uh, fans out there. That's right. So for this episode, it's uh, October 4th, as uh, you, the listener, are going to be experiencing this episode. And uh, we wanted to give you a special episode for uh, St. Petronius Day that is on the history of the city of Bologna. So... You ready to get into it, Stephen? Yeah, so just so everybody knows, St. Petronio is the patron saint of which Italian city? Ding, ding, ding. You guessed it. <laughs> the city of Bologna. That's right. All right, so let's let's dive into this. So I'm okay. going to start out with a little bit of ancient history. Uh, Bologna begins as a Bronze Age settlement somewhere between 3,700 years ago. The settlement flourished and really took shape in the 9th century B.C., the early inhabitants of Bologna were of the Villanovian culture until the 9th century when the Etruscans appeared and took over the city. They called it Velsna, or Chief Town. So, you know, if we start calling each other Chief, then that's appropriate. Sounds good by me. <laughs> yeah. Then in the 4th century BC, the Gaelic tribes of Boy conquered Whee! the city Boy! <laughs> and renamed it uh, Felsina and mingled with the Etruscans. All right. So I guess I'll take the next part then, yeah? Yeah. All right. So this is on the Mediterranean, and so you know who's coming, right? Yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's inevitable. The Romans. <laughs> it's inevitable. <laughs> okay. The Romans really wanted their piece of Bologna, or as they called it, Bononia. Uh, guess what the first thing the Romans did when they got to that spot was? Conquered. What would that be? They conquered. They came. They built a road. That's right. <laughs> Okay. That road, as you will be hearing about over and over in Maestro Wars, is the Via Emilia. And that's the big highway on the Po Plain on the south side. So that's going to connect Modena, Bologna, Imola, all those places. All right. So it was born in the same year that it was founded, the Via Emilia, 189 B.C., and because the Romans were big on doing things the correct way, the old city was destroyed. And then they put the new one in. Oh, and then there was a new one put in later uh, after a fire in 69 AD um, to make it a true Roman town. So like a lot of the old Etruscans, they built it on the Opidium, I believe they were called. And then it became a true Roman town. I believe the heart of the Roman town is the same as the main square now, Piazza Maggiore, which is just Italian for main square. All right. And so then once the Romans come, they settle down. We know who's coming next. That's right, the Jesus. And the teachings of Jesus came into the area. Um, to a large part, thanks to the Christian martyrs Agricola and Vitale. Uh, who were totally welcomed by Diocletian with uh, <laughs> martyrdom. 
and infinite fame. And so they put their remains in the church's church of St. Stefano, not to be confused with the city's church of St. Petronio. Big rivalry there later. Yep, we'll get to and, that. Yeah, they knocked down a temple of Isis to do that. And so the stage was set uh, for St. Petronio. Yeah, so then we have, this is our, our introduction of St. Petronio. So he comes in and ends up becoming the saint patron saint of the city of Bologna because he built the church on top of the uh, temple of Isis. So, And that's why we're celebrating this special episode. There we go. Yeah, that's why the he's significant. love goddess. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's the love saint. <laughs> and of course, uh, so, you know, now that we've talked about Rome, we have to kind of talk about the fall of Rome because everything, all the stability and structure that the Romans come and build gets torn down in 476 AD with the, German, <laughs> with the Germanic invasions um, that leave Bologna as a heap of ruins, or at this point, Bononia. Um, in 726, the Lombards come down and occupy the area and hold it until 1046 when the Franks invade northern Italy. And then that's when we have our friend Charlemagne come down and get crowned Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, he gives the city to the papacy as a gift, and it would remain under their, under their dominion off and on until 1860. Now let's talk about the single most important thing that happened in Bologna. All right, so this is an important thing to recognize is most cities kind of arise due to some sort of geographical factor, right? Venice arises because they're on a lagoon and basically they can ignore everybody. Genoa's got its great harbor. Rome controls a crossing in the Tiber River. Milan is in the middle of a plain. Bologna, it's nowhere special. It's just one more of a gazillion little towns on a plain. But the thing that separates Bologna is that some dude who was happened to be Bolognese went down south to learn some law down, I think, in Naples or uh, Salerno, and then decides to come back and start teaching law. And not just law, but the theory of law. And this is a really big deal at the time because different peoples are living under different laws but all living together, and it's a huge, giant pain in the ass. And somebody's trying, so people are trying to combine all of the different laws so everybody can live under one law and they need to have people who can talk about the theory of the law and from this what is born joshua the university of bologna that's right Woo. Woo. oldest university in europe and oldest continuous running university in the world all right you want to take it from there joshua Sure. So, so I just wanted to do my little riff on the university because I always thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, that but was it's great. Just totally that was random. Fantastic. Some dude just happens to start teaching there. Yeah. So you know, one of the sort of the hallmarks of Bologna outside of its university that sort of comes up in the early middle Middle Ages is Bologna starts to become the city of towers, and the first tower was built in 1109 by the Asinelli family. Um, and it was quickly followed by the tower that was built by the de Garcinda family. And over the next centuries, the skyline would fill with hundreds of these towers. So, And they built these towers because they just liked really tall things, right? Absolutely, yes. They just wanted to see no other how high they could build. There was no other purpose. It was for the glory of God. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know... 
that whole Babel story and everything like that it had yeah, nothing to do with it. Yeah, no, it's just no. trying to reach the heights that they could reach, but they get closer yeah, to God. No, they were. Yeah, they were. They were definitely for personal defense. So, um, you know, as the area was still relatively uh, unstable, uh, and the city's municipality was starting to develop defenses, uh, it was easier for people to build tall towers where they could make it so if. For, for example, another family were to decide to come in and try to kill them, they could hide in the top of their tower and hopefully get men in before it became a problem. Right. And so they and there ended up how being how many of these towers in Bologna? 118. 118 towers? And this is a city about one square mile large. Wow. That's a yeah. lot of towers. It was a lot of towers. All right, so uh, I guess we should expand a little bit on the the free municipality status. So the Italians kind of lost their interest in being ruled by the Germans, and so they all tried to find their way away. And this is where it became a free municipality, free from the normal governance of the Holy Roman Empire, at least not part of any uh, larger unit. I think that's what that was, right? Correct, like they're just yeah. ruled just by the emperor, and they're not part of some dukedom or something like that, and with a lot of their own laws. And this is where the name Bologna comes from. Strangely enough, Bologna is Hebrew. It means, in it, Yahweh is staying, which I am surprised that it has an Italian city has a Jewish name, but that's cool. Yeah. So it's it's actually really interesting here because um, the city of Bologna had a pretty deep connection with the uh, the Jewish community. There was a large Jewish community in the city, and so our two uh, aforementioned um, martyrs um, were actually buried in a Jewish cemetery way back in the in the Roman times. So uh, Bologna, all the way back to its ancient history, was uh, deeply tied to to uh, Judaism. And uh, it actually has the oldest Jewish Pentateuch, uh, which uh, some people believe might have had an influence in the city, but was actually just recently discovered. So within the last Pentateuch? century. Pentateuch. Um, I I don't have a good answer for that. Okay, <laughs> it sounds cool. Five of something. <laughs> oh yeah. All right, cool. So it's kind of like the Boston of Italy, and it's kind of like the Brooklyn of Italy. Yeah, so we also have to point out too that um, the free municipality of Bologna was granted by the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, um, which is important for later conflicts that we're about to talk about because because getting into eleven seventy six things are about to go down for real in Italy. Yeah, this this probably led to a lot of the uh, population of the city with the towers. In 1176, Frederick Barbarossa invaded northern Italy and sets his sight on the city of Bologna specifically. The citizens of Bologna built four kilometers of walls around the house, houses, palaces, and merchant buildings in the city, along with a moat, and thanks to their collective effort, Barbarossa was unable, unable to overcome the defenses. Um, now, an interesting note here is that legend has it during the invasion that Barbarossa fell ill and stopped in the city of uh, Medicina. Medicina, uh, yeah. Medicina. Thank you. I, we're going to be doing that a lot through this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Medicina for uh, treatment, and, and thus the term medicine was born. Medicina is just like five miles from Bologna. Yeah, it. you know, yeah, and it's it's a city that's constantly under conflict. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. So the Middle Ages, 
was a turbulent time in Bologna. So I, I, at one point, I think the city had a population of 50,000 and 20,000 people left the town because of political disagreements. Like there was the Lambertini, I think, were one of the families and they got kicked out and they took basically half the population of Bologna with them. So it was really a tumultuous place with lots of fighting. Um, and it was kind of the fertile soil that saw the flowering of this tower city. Uh, but there was one problem with the towers. And uh, as you can imagine, these were not built to modern standards. <laughs> um, yeah. And so as it turned out on a day, 7th of May, 1201, there was a tower that collapsed. And it killed 35 people. All right. Now we have to talk about the great party that was going on everywhere in Italy. There were these two groups of people, the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. Why don't you break that down for us, Joshua? Sure. So um, the Guelphs were those that supported the Pope, and the Ghibellines were those that supported the Emperor. So... You know, at this time, uh, because of the expansion of the Holy Roman Empire, there was a lot of contention between who was subject to the Pope and who was subject to the Emperor. And, of course, with Bologna's early, uh, you know, what we just talked about a little bit ago with Frederick Barbarossa, kind of allowing Bologna to be this free city, um, he actually created a lot of conflict around the city of Bologna specifically. Um so this uh, this conflict brought the city of Bologna into direct contention with its neighbor Modena, which was uh, heavily favored towards the Ghibellines, um, and the territorial boundaries that were set by Frederick Barbarossa. Uh, the Modenese, uh, with their backing of King Enzo of Swabia, so remember that name because he's going to be important. The son Very of Frederick, this, yeah, the son of Frederick II squared off with the Bolognese in the locality of Fosalta. Fos Near the, near the Panaro, Panaro River. River, which we're going to be spending some time at the Panaro River in our second episode. Yeah. <laughs> very gonna, important river. Very. And and more in this episode, too. There's a yeah. lot of conflict there. There's a lot of the Panaro River. <laughs> yeah. So, and who won? So the Bolognese troops actually managed to take the day and capture the emperor's nephew, Reenzo, or Ooh, King Enzo, during ouch. the fighting. Yeah. And to sort of add insult to injury, Frederick II of Swabia, the current uh, Holy Roman Emperor, desperately tried to negotiate a ransom with the Bolognese. But, you know, being a They're banking stubborn city. bastards. <laughs> yeah. And, and being a banking city, the Bolognese were like, yeah, we know about how much this guy's worth. <laughs> <laughs> so they refused to accept. And uh, when the emperor tragically passed away in 1250, all hope of ransom for King Enzo of Swabia vanished, and he lived the rest of his life in a magnificent palace that the Bolognese people built for him, which eventually became the town hall of the city, Palazzo Re Enzo, located in front of the uh, Piazza Maggiore. And uh, I just want to riff on the Guelphs and the Ghibellines a little bit, because there's something super Italian about it. All right, so when you look at which cities are Guelph and which are Ghibelline, what you'll find is that in every area, the dominant city is always Guelph because the, po the Guelph basically said, we want to have maximum power to do what we want. Now, the cities around them didn't really like the emperor. They didn't really want the emperor there, but they were more afraid of the big city being swallowed up 
by the big city. So, for example, Modena wasn't like, ooh, we love Frederick Barbarossa and the German emperor. They were just more afraid of Bologna than they were of the emperor. And so a lot of Italian politics is basically medium-sized fish trying not to be eaten by big fish and big fish saying that they should have maximum power to eat all the fish that they want. And so the big Guelph cities are like Milan, Florence, and Bologna because they're all the dominant towns in their neighborhood. And usually the towns directly next to them are all ghibbling. Yeah, and there's a there's definitely a class aspect to this as well um, where a lot of times the Guelph cities w- were the more affluent cities and right. they remained Guelph because they were going to pay their indulg- indulgences to the Pope and to the church anyway. Whereas the Ghibelline cities were like, well, we need the protection, so we would rather rely on a foreign power. But as we'll kind of see um, as this overall history progresses, um, some wealthy cities did use the lure of the emperor as a way to kind of centralize their own power. Right, and Ghibellines were also represented the urban, or not the, the rural nobles, the ancient landed nobility, while the uh, Guelphs were usually allied with the burghers, who had lots of dough. And as it turned out, the Ghibellines tended to be a little bit better at fighting, as you'd imagine, than the guys who were great at making money. That's right, yeah. So to continue on our, our timeline here, in 1256, Bologna was the first municipality in the Italian sphere to abolish slavery and serfdom. Woo! Yeah, which is pretty cool. Um, it, was, it was also in this century that the city expanded significantly, and as a result, uh, the, a new set of walls were built to encompass the expansion, which ballooned to 60,000 inhabitants, making Bologna the fifth largest city in Europe at this time after Cordoba, Paris, Venice, and Florence. So, that's, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff. That was its heyday. Yeah, and and to sort of facilitate this growth, um, Bologna started construction on its dynamic canal system, which helped it become the largest textile industry in Italy, Um, right up there with Milan. I mean, it it was kind of neck and neck. At any time, either of them could be producing more. Um, And the canals, which we'll talk about later in the episode, were fed by estuaries of the Reno and Savina rivers, um, which flow basically north and south of uh, the city of Bologna. Um, And uh, these canals continued to grow until they reached a network of 80 kilometers of waterway, providing hygienic solutions for its citizens, mechanical power for its economy, and commuter options. Um, And then... uh, Commuter options, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, some of them did, right? So it's actually really interesting because... Well, we'll talk about the we'll we'll talk about why some of the the canals were not good for commuters because I can just <laughs> dead like, dogs. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah. So in 1271, speaking of dead dogs, in 1271, uh, they passed their first hygiene control measures, forbidding uh, throwing carrion dogs, manure, rubbish skins, and excrement into the canals. Um, so, I guess the really interesting uh, point about this entire thing, though, is that. Um, the, the size and dynamism of these canals actually allowed the city of Bologna, which is completely landlocked and isn't necessarily like connected to these rivers in a, a, in a geographically close way, like they had to really work to di- divert these rivers, um, were actually able to build a navy. And in 1271, they fought a naval battle with the Venetians over trade lanes in the Adriatic Sea. 
Wow. So they wait. They had they had a navy on the rivers in Bologna that went out into the Adriatic. Yeah. So they they would what basically what they did. So the uh, the Reno River feeds into the Po River, and so they went out of their canals up the wow. Reno down the Po and then fought the uh, Venetians at the mouth of the Po River. Have we done an episode on that yet? Oh, we're, yeah, we were definitely doing an episode. We on have that. to do an episode on that. That is so cool. I mean, I, I think the super cool thing about this is is the guy that they beat is actually uh, Jacopo Dandolo, which oh. is freaking badass. Because if you know anything about Venetian history, you know he was a badass. So. Oh yeah, that's right. The Dandolos were the they're the ones that took over Constantinople, I think, right? But yeah, yes, the, we should probably not. Yeah. So, All right. So put in the comments if you want to find out more about these river battles between Bologna and Venice and and uh, other maritime and naval topics because this is an interesting thing, I think. Something I never really thought about. Yeah. So then in uh, 1280, a few kind of like interesting points about this is uh, in 1286, uh, Dante Alighieri came to visit the city. Um, probably for university stu- uh, studies, and it was an experience that he memorialized in uh, his Inferno, uh, Canto 31, where he remembers the Garcedina Tower, which is one of the first towers that was built. Later in 1320, uh, Petrarch visits the city for his legal studies at the University of Bologna. Um, yeah, we and- should also note Dante pointed out that the Bolognese had, I think he said, the best accent in all of Italy. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting because in, in kind of like compiling some of this research too, Stephen, uh, one of the interesting things that I found in like 1700, uh, this kind of related to this, but there was <laughs> there was a guy who was, I, I think it was a famous writer, and he, he talked about why he kept going to the city of Bologna to write, and he said that the, Bologna had the most beautiful women in Europe, mm. and that's why he kept going to Bologna because he said he, wow. yeah. Sounds like a great reason to go. All right, so uh, can I talk about the bucket? Yeah, talk about the bucket. All right, guys. So this is a pretty uh, epic moment in Bolognese history, and this is about the War of the Oaken Bucket. That is a bucket made out of oak. All right, now you'll remember how I was just talking about there was Guelph cities and Ghibelline cities, and the dudes in the countrysides turned out to be a little bit better at fighting than the merchants in town. Well... Bologna happens to find itself getting into a conflict with Modena. And the conflicts kind of came because it didn't end, the original fight didn't end with the capture of King Enzo of Swabia. They raged on as a constant war that was hot, it ran cold. And the, the rivalry between Bologna and Modena became very intense and almost like hatred. It's, which is kind of an interesting thing too, because Guido Rangoni himself is Modena, so it must have Modena, so it must have cooled down by then. But uh, finally, as these things sort of go, uh, it had to come to a head. There had to be the epic collision between these two. Okay, and so the Bolognese invaded had invaded the Modenese lands back in 1296, taken Bazzano and Savigno. With the backing of the Pope, who recognized these castles as Bolognese territory back in 1298. And in 1306, the people of Reggio and Modena rebelled against their ruler, who was a deste, when he tried to impose a bride price on his people. 
That is, uh, he was trying to get money for his daughter's dowry. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, basically. So the custom at this point had been of, of a bride price where basically the people of the city that were paying for protection from their lord would pay for him to give his bride price to whoever he's getting you know, the, what a racket, yeah. man. These guys are really more like mafiosi than they are like <laughs> lords. But yeah. Anyway, so yeah. So strangely yeah. enough, they didn't really want to pay the dowry for Atso, the eighth Deste's daughter. So they rebelled. And that didn't go good for Atso, Deste. And there was a whole bunch of partying with that, including some dude named Bakaro Bakari climbing the Asinelli Tower with two sticks he used to wedge between the mortar of these old bricks. And then he lit a giant fire at the top of the tower to celebrate the Deste defeat. Man, talk about adding insult to injury. Yeah. That is some shit talking there. Yeah, it's a little petty too, but you know, they were just kind of like, we had nothing to do with this, we but had nothing, yeah. yay, he's dead. Yeah, woohoo. <laughs> Atso's defeat wasn't the best possible outcome, though, for everybody because he was replaced by a na- dude named Passarino Bonacossi, who was an agent of Louis of Bavaria, the Holy Roman Emperor. And he made it his primary policy to get back at Bologna. So when you're victorious or things are going your way, don't climb on top of a tower to light a fire and, and shit talk. <laughs> Just drink your wine, have a smile, and, and play it cool. <laughs> All right, so this guy had Parma, this guy had Reggio, this guy had Modena under his control. He had a lot of muscle. And Pope John was trying to limit the influence of Bonacolse, declared him a rebel against the church. And he granted indulgences, basically a license to kill, um, against them and their supporters. So this turned into a big, epic fight that raged for 27 more years until the final climactic end in July of 1325 when Bolognese militia troops, which accordingly, according to what we know, was something on the order of 25,000, but that may be a bit of an exaggeration. Yeah, it's a huge number. It was some huge number. Anyway, they went into Modenese territory, and they just took shit. They just sacked all the places, created a whole bunch of problems um, and again like we were talking about uh, in episode 2 the castle of Spilumberto was j- built just to stop this sort of thing from happening because the Bolognese had a, tabit, a nasty habit of invading Modenese territory and taking stuff as did everybody back then right mm-hmm. yeah these were not nice people anyway so in September there is a big battle between Wow, what a name that is. Malatesta, Malatesta Gusta Familia, uh, who is controlling the Modonese force. If, is that correct? Uh, he's in. No, he's hired by the Bolognese. Oh, he's hired by the Bolognese. Sorry, I missed that part. All right. Uh, Mantua attacks Rocco Monteveglio, oh, which we also have in our second episode, and Pizzano through treachery. All right, so now the scene is set for the big battle. So there are... Malatesta gets allies from Florence and other cities in the Romagna, ends up with 30,000 foot, 
and 2,500 cavalry, and he attacks the fortress of Montevideo. Not long after the siege began, a relief force led by Cangrande della Scala, the leader of the Ghibelline faction in northern Italy, also Dante's patron, he came to drive away the besieging army from Montevideo, but eventually left because of a fire in Verona. <laughs> Convenient. Convenient. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so now there's another army, the Modenese army, with... 2,800 horse and 5,000 foot. I, I want to say my memory is there's more than 5,000 foot soldiers for this. But either way, as you'd expect, the Bolognese forces set up along the river Panaro to prevent the Modenese from crossing and attacking their besieging forces. And with superior numbers, the Bolognese felt confident they could hold off the Modenese and still have time to shift their forces to wherever the Modenese were thinking they could attack. Now... Bonacolse and Visconti, who was commanding the forces of Modena, devised a plan where they attacked north, and while the Bolognese forces were settling in for the night, they shifted their forces south and crossed the river at Marano sul Panaro. They defeated the Bolognese vanguard in the area and started marching toward Zapolino. The Bolognese quickly redirected their forces south, recalling the men they just sent north. Before the reinforcements could arrive and position themselves, though, Bonacolsi's force attacked the Bolognese lines at Ziribega. Despite having the advantage of the high ground, the Bolognese forces were disorganized. Methinks there was some wine involved there. <laughs> Recognizing this, Bonacolsi decided the moment was right to deliver the big attack, and he sent his cavalry, and really, at this point, the primary job of infantry in these battles is to get mowed down by knights. That's right. You can have 30,000 knights and or 30,000 foot and 2,000 knights and you're about as good as a guy with 2,100 knights. Right. And and hence why we have 30,000 infantry with with 2,500 cavalry getting their asses whooped by 2,800 horse and 5,000 cavalry because those extra 300 horsemen are just like the decisive factor here. Yeah, these are dudes with armor just riding through you just back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, right? And I think, yeah, this is before a lot of the later innovations. Anyway, so things don't go very good for the Bolognese forces. In fact, they get their butts completely whooped. And within hours, they were utterly routed, and the Modonese troops chased them all the way to the walls of Bologna. They took the castles of Crespolano, Zola, Samoja, ooh, we got to remember Samoja, mm-hmm. Anzola, Castelfranco, Piumazzo, another one that shows in ours, and Chiusa, wow, they got all the way to Rino on the Casalecchio. Yep. which controlled the canals that controlled the water into the Reno River, which we also talk about in episode two. However, the Modenese didn't besiege the city of Bologna because they just didn't have enough dudes. Uh, Bologna is a big city. I think by now the walls were about 10 miles around or something like that, some ridiculous distance. So yeah. it's just too big for such a small force to besiege. So they leave. They throw an epic party just well, to talk shit. Yeah, before they leave, they throw an epic party in right. front of the walls of Bologna. Of course, yeah. of yeah. course. Where else are you going to throw it, right? <laughs> yeah. And it- yeah, and they have, they have this epic party, and they take out their final prize. And what is their final prize, Joshua? The oaken bucket. Yes, they take a bucket, a bucket, <laughs> which... The people of Modena now still proudly display in their town. 
Never underestimate just how much pride these Italians can take in little shit that they did 700 years ago against <laughs> a rival town. Yeah. How many times do you think that Guido Rangone took one of the Bentivoglio <laughs> to go see the bucket? Let's <laughs> <laughs> drink from the bucket, shall we? <laughs> hey, guys, you want to meet me at the bucket? Oh, <laughs> all right. So now let's talk about now. This is sort of now becomes a bad time for Bologna. They they sort of start their fall from the top. You want to talk about that, Joshua? Yeah, so we, I kind of term this as the turbulent age. Um, in 1327 to 1334, um, Bologna was basically chosen as an alternative city of Avignon for the seat of the Pope um, during the first purple, papal schism, um, dur- or excuse me, during the um, Babylonian captivity. Uh, the Pope assigned this guy named uh, Bertrand du Puget as papal legate of the city and commissioned a sumptuous and and this dude like he was he was totally extravagant this guy he he had a whole bunch of building programs that were just absolutely ridiculous um you know bologna was a relatively wealthy city but this guy just drained the coffers built himself a sumptuous palace and had it um, decorated by a famous bolognese painter named giotto um of course, the Bolognese people hated this, so in 1334 they rebelled, taking to the streets to throw shit at the Cardinal Puget, <laughs> his on his enclave, and his elegant palazzo. Uh, this made uh, Puget run away, and the Bolognese people destroyed his palazzo. And then in 1337, the free Bolognese people created a signoria and elected Taddeo Pepoli as the leader. Can, can you uh, explain what the signoria is for a minute? Because it's a pretty important idea for the rest of our story here. Yeah, so the Signoria is basically um, similar to if if people are familiar with the uh, like the the Florentine government, it's it's a a group of elected nobles from the city who govern the city. So um, I think the Bolognese Signoria had ten. Is that correct? Or was it thirteen? I think it was sixteen, maybe at least by the 16. time of the Bentivoglio, it was sixteen. Okay. Yeah, and it, it goes through a couple different names. We're going to talk about a couple different names. There's the Aziani, and there's the... Um, John, a blink on the last one. We'll the get there. The first signore of the town was named Tadeo Pepoli. Pepoli, yeah. Is that a ancestor of Hugo Pepoli? Yes, it is. Oh, what do you know? Yeah. yeah. All right. And then the great party came in, 19, in 1348... I think everybody knows what's coming here. Yeah. The, the, plague uh, the old Black Death. <laughs> yep. And it, it absolutely wrecks the population of Bologna. It goes from 40 to 50,000 inhabitants down to about 20 to 25,000 inhabitants. So literally cuts it in half. Yeah. It's amazing. It bad years for everybody there. All right. So what um, about this next part here? Who is that yeah, brought to us by? Uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th- we've got an advertisement for this part. This next this next part of Bolognese history is brought to you by Fratricide. <laughs> Have you hugged your brother today? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So to make matters worse, in 1350, the city was invaded by Archbishop Giovanni Visconti, the Lord of Milan. The Pepoli incited a rebellion in the city, uh, but that didn't work out so good. As a matter of fact, the Visconti... Uh, put it down, but they were so hated by the Bolognese people that the Visconti had to build a hanging fortress. <laughs> what is a hanging fortress, Joshua? 
All right, so basically what this fortress looked like is they hung two beams between the Asinelli and the Garacinda Towers in Bologna and built a bridge across and then built a fortress, like a, a tower <laughs> fortress, in the middle of this bridge that they built above the people so they couldn't be reached by the citizens of Bologna because so that's how bad loved. they were hated. <laughs> they were loved. Yeah. Yeah, they wow. were enormously despised. That is some so. epic level of hatred. Yeah. So, well, I guess they probably didn't weep for the Visconti when those forts were replaced them. Anyway, because of its enormous... Oh, it's a, it was described in the Contemporary Chronicle to be a bridge suspended between two impregnable towers with the fortress in the middle. Because of its enormous size, one of the towers started to lean. I mean, it was an Italian tower after all. <laughs> and so they had to lower the height of the Garizanda Tower to 48 meters, Uh in real measurements, I think that's about 130 feet. <laughs> real measurements. <laughs> yeah. right. So that way I could continue to support the Visconti's little hotel in Bologna. Right, and it was originally uh, 60 meters tall. So right, quite, so they had, to knock, change. they had to knock 40 feet off that thing. So Matteo II was originally the Visconti lord in charge of Bologna, but in 1355, his loving brothers, Bernabo and Galeazzo, invited him over for dinner. And they served him, um, it looks like, poison. <laughs> he seems yeah. to have disagreed with the poison and uh, decided to go to that big meal in the sky. So the lordship of Bologna then passed to Bernabo Visconti, who was probably not much loved. And they now had the whole of the Visconti holdings in northern Italy. And it was declared an imperial vicar under the control uh, under his control, by the Holy Roman Emperor. So he had a big fief uh, that basically was most of northern Italy, probably about as close as Italy, northern Italy, ever came to being united under a single polity. Yeah, and this is actually really important for the rest of the history that we're going to talk about because basically the history of Bologna from this point forward um, until the fall of the Visconti is going to be the Visconti coming back to claim their lands, um, which they were, which were decreed by this imperial vic, at, like when the, they were declared as imperial vicars over northern Italy. And the Bolognese, they just love this, right? They loved being one of the domains of the Visconti. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, well, it's interesting. About half the city did. Half the city thought they really? should be. Yeah, half the city. Uh, so that's what leads to a lot of this conflict is that half the city of Bologna wanted Milanese control, and half the city, they they had basically their own miniature Guelph Ghibelline split oh, within the, the city. city. Right. Yeah. It, it's pretty. It's pretty trippy. So beginning in third. 1867, as a result of Ghibelline underpinnings, Galeazzo and Bernabo fought a series of battles with the Pope. Before the conflict ended, an instability of Romagna morphed into the War of Eight Saints in 1375. Do we know why that's called the War of Eight Saints? No. No idea? All right. Well, it's a cool name. All it right, is a so cool name. We'll have to look into that. <laughs> this, this opens up... The tale now for the return of a Bolognese control of Bologna. Would you like to talk about that for us, Joshua? Yeah, so hold the War of Eight Saints in your mind because it's going to be important for what we talk about in the history before. But to talk about the rise of the Bentivoglio, um, before we 
kind of get into that, we have to talk about the origin of the Bentivoglio. So there's a legend uh, that Ghiridaki actually refutes. Uh, he says it's not true, but apparently the, the Bentivoglio, we're pretty proud of it. So we're just going to run with it in this series and we're just going to, because it's fun, right? Yeah. 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 So um, legend has it that a young Bolognese lady by the name of Lucia de Viadola uh, was courted by the imprisoned Hohenstaufen King Ray Enzo, our friend from earlier in our story, um, after his capture. And uh, the story has it that he wooed her with the phrase, Bintivoglio, or, <laughs> well, I want you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not... <laughs> Well, I want you. It's I want you bad, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and thus the name Bentivoglio was bequeathed to their love child. <laughs> good story. Yeah, it is a good story. And that's where we get the name Bentivoglio from. So uh, to sort of continue on from the War of Eight Saints, in 1376, the, the Bolognese revolted against papal rule and joined Florence in the War of Eight Saints, which Florence and Milan at this point were fighting, uh, you know, a pretty heavy very passionate war and so the city once this had happened the city set up a new constitution and established here unto recognized civic liberties which were uh, actually recognized by Pope Gregory the uh, 11th in 1377 of course for an annual fee because you know you're the Pope <laughs> hey, it's expensive running <laughs> well freedom is expensive right yeah, it's like exactly you guys want to be free okay well why don't you just pay for it How on a monthly basis you? yeah exactly. you know you know $15 a month whatever um, this <laughs> this city was firmly rooted in the idea of keeping power uh, among the society to know Note, uh, or the four noble guilds and the note were so this this goes back to the university and it also goes back to the canals um, so there were notable families that came up and there were merchant guilds that were seen as being higher than other guilds so there was basically a, a tier system within the city based on what guild you were in and um, the note or the, the note were the lawyers um, Cambiatori, which were the Good. bankers, the drapieri, which were the cloth merchants, and the Arta Serica, Serisa? Serica. Serica, okay. I was, I was right the first time. That was first. Trust your instincts, <laughs> Padawan. <laughs> <laughs> or the silk merchants. So uh, basically, lawyers, bankers, cloth merchants, and silk merchants were first class citizens in Bologna. In 1395, uh, Pope Boniface IX conferred the office of vicar upon the Gonfalonieri and Aziani of Bologna for 25 years. So basically he said, I will let you keep this government running for 25 years um, and we'll see where it goes, right? And then in 1398, the Visconti Fortress hanging between the Asinali and uh, Garacinda Towers was burned down and of so course sad. the people <laughs> and the the people of Bologna celebrated the destruction <laughs> so of a symbol they associated yeah with uh, Visconti tyranny they weren't too upset about it <laughs> <laughs> but some of them actually were upset so at this time the city was divided into factions uh the Scarcese um who took their name from the checkerboard pattern of the Pepoli's coat of arms uh because Tadio Pepoli was the first sort of free leader of the city um, and these this group uh, stood for Bolognese independence and the inclusion and the inclusion of the lower classes um, and then there were the Maltraversi 
who would rather see a foreign power rule the city um, than submit themselves to the rule of their social inferiors. Sound like great guys, Sounds right? Sounds <laughs> vaguely familiar. So this is a little bit like uh, Rome with the, the populares and the optimates. It's the same kind of lower orders versus the snobs on top. Yeah, but those those two factions are actually super important to remember as we continue through the story. So another another thing to kind of keep in your mind hole as we continue on. All right, so I guess let's talk about Giovanni the First Bentivoglio. All right, internal strife within the Holy See of Rome prevented the papacy from reclaiming Bologna, and in fourteen o one, Giovanni the First Bentivoglio who was a member of the Society of Lawyers, was put in power by the Duke of Milan. The Bentivoglio family historically were members of the guilds, so mostly butchers and notaries, and always claimed to be citizens and parishioners. So they would have been traditionally connected with the lower classes. Is that right, Joshua? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. okay. But they, they were like, uh, they made good. Yeah, and... There's, there are a lot of footnotes throughout the historical record that the Bentivoglio always used the butchers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Unfortunately, things didn't work out that well for Giovanni I. His rule didn't get to last that long as Milan turned out to not be super happy with how he did things. He didn't like the Bentivoglio in power. And in 1402, when the Bentivoglio tried to ally themselves with Florence against Milan, the Milanese came back at Bologna with their... Milan tended to have a pretty big army in these days. And badass, yeah. Yeah, they kind of had the best knights. And so the Milanese armies defeated a combined Bolognese and Florentine army at the Battle of Casalecchio di Reno, which there's many a Battle of Casalecchio di Reno. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. It's pretty much the classic place to fight a battle when you want to control Bologna. Right. And so that didn't go so good. And so people started... Marching through the streets, because remember, there's a lot of people that are in favor of uh, the Milanese. And they shout, long live the people, death to Giovanni. And that's how politics was back then. Giovanni tried to fight back. He managed to have two horses killed underneath him. And he supposedly took out at least eight men, but it wasn't enough. And he was taken prisoner. Strangely enough, his body was found three days later naked on the altar of the Church of San Giacomo, uh, which we will also be talking about in future episodes of the podcast. Yeah, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in a quick note here. Uh, this is this is actually something that I just recently stumbled on, so this was super interesting and uh, is definitely gonna have to be a podcast in the future. Um, Sweet. So the overthrow of the papal Maltraversi faction in Bologna that allowed Giovanni to take power um, was perpetrated by uh, Lancelotto uh, Beccaria, one of the knights of renown that Fiore de Libre mentions in his text as being one of his students. Uh, Lancelotto entered the city. I'm just going to call him Lancelot. Um, yeah. Took the piazza of the Palazzo del Commune and then repelled a sortie by the Gazzadini and the Maltraversi aligned factions. Um, so the Gazzadini were the other sort of family in power at the time. Um, they kind of shared power with the Bentivoglio until this happened and then the Bentivoglio were sole regents. Um, but after securing the city for Giovanni, Lancelot stayed on in Bologna and Bologna and the Bentivoglio service as the captain general of the Bolognese forces. Uh, he fights this really torrid back and forth campaign against Albrecht de Barbiano in Romagna, 
before Muzio Attendolo Sforza comes to the aid of the Bolognese, um, and the tide of the fight shifts um, against the Visconti in favor of the Bolognese. And then yeah. together... Oh, keep going. Oh, uh, I was just going to point out that Museo Attendolo Sforza is the great-grandfather of Hannibal and Hermes Bentivoglio and the great-great-grandfather of Guido Rangoni. And so it's, it's, I, I thought that was super interesting, too, because yeah. like from this cool point forward... Beccaria shows up in this. It, it is. And then from this point forward, we have a lot of connections that end up going back and forth between the Sforza and the Bentivoglio families. So... You know, this this almost feels like this was forged at this time. At this time, yeah. The strong connection between the Bentavoglio and the Sforza and Bologna and Milan. But so not the to, bad Milan of the Visconti. That's that's right. The good the good Milan the of good the Sforza. The good Milan of the Sforza, I guess. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> I'll put an asterisk. Um, so together with Sforza, um, Beccaria squares off against the full might of the Visconti army, and, an, and another famous knight of Fiore's patronage, uh, Galeazzo de Mantua, at Castellecchio del Reno. Wait, at where? <laughs> at another battle at Castellecchio del Reno? No, 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 this is the same battle. So this is, oh, this is oh, all, sorry. yeah, so this is the consolidation. This is basically I like a very Backstory. brief, yeah, th- well, it's kind of like... Yeah, I see it now, okay, got it. Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot that happens, like, Milan puts Giovanni in power and then instantly starts harassing him with their knights. Like, they just, I guess they decide that maybe it wasn't exactly what they wanted to do. But then again, at this time, too. Um, uh, the Visconti were just kind of dicks, though. I mean, that's just. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> so, either way, uh, both men are unhorsed in the battle and they end up getting captured. And then, of course, Giovanni dies. So with the death of Giovanni, you want to talk about yes. the rise so let's of Let's talk Anton about Galeazzo? the next Bentavoglio, Anton Galeazzo. Ten years later, in 1412, Bologna was again under the direct rule of the papacy. Oh, they managed to switch. The son of Giovanni I, Anton Galeazzo, was in the city where he worked hard to maintain the family's reputation and status in the wake of his father's death. Being a good Bolognese boy, Antonio Galeazzo attended the University of Bologna, where he earned his doctorate in civil law. From 1418 to 1420, he was a lecturer at the university. Funny story. Anton and his buddy Gaspare Malvezzi both liked this chick named Francesca Gozzadini. Now, when a boy really likes a girl, sometimes <laughs> that girl ends up with a baby in her tummy. And neither Gaspari nor Anton could figure out who was the one that got her knocked up, and she didn't know either. So they decided to roll a dice. (laughs) And Anton won and got a son out of the deal. And so when Francesca gave birth to a son, he was given the name of Hannibal Bentavoglio. Later in 1420, Anton would finally marry Francesca Gozzadini. In the year 1414... During the Great Papal Schism, Anton Galeazzo was one of the lawyers that traveled to the Council of Constance, where the anti-pope, and that's basically just a dude who thinks he's pope when he's not pope, is was John the Twenty-Third. And when John Twenty-Third, oh, sorry, when John the Twenty-Third's lieutenant in Bologna was driven from the Palazzo del Comune, he found refuge in the Bentivoglio family palazzo until he could be safely brought out of the city. 
later in 1414, 14, Anton Galeazzo out, rides out to meet with the most famous condottieri of that age, a, name, a man by the name of Braccio da Montone. Now, good for Anton Galeazzo. He was friends with Braccio da Montone, which is probably the best thing to be with him. And they were close friends. Uh, now, Braccio da Montone had not come alone, but he came with a papal army. Now, all was not peaceful and diplomatic for Anton Galeazzo, however. In 1420, after he claimed Francesca as his bride, he made a fateful move to consolidate his newfound power in Bologna. And that meant removing the other leading family in the city, the Canatoli, who shared the political sphere but leaned heavily towards the opposite faction, the Malchaversi faction. Anton Galeazzo recalled liberty-minded Scacchese exiles to the city who had been sent away with the return of papal dominance. So these are the Bolognese independents slash Friends of Milan party. Made alliance with prominent families in the city and seized the Palazzo del Comune. The Canatoli were not going to back down, though. They stormed the piazza of the palace, shouting, Long live the people! And the arts. <laughs> That's one interesting war cry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Bentvoyo responded, marching out of the palace, the whole family in tow. Even Lady Giovanna Bentvoyo grabbed a sword and stood beside her husband, Gaspare Malvezzi. Hmm. An incident you can read more about in Sabatino degli Arienti's praise of illustrious, illustrious ladies. The coup d'etat was successful for the Bentavoya, though. However, it would not last, as most of these things did not last. The Pope, Boniface IX, was unhappy with the status quo of the government in Bologna and was seeking reform, and he wasn't fond of his city being ruled by a tyrant, which... Anton Galeazzo had sort of made himself a tyrant. So he put Bologna under interdict, which is kind of like excommunicating an entire town rather than a person. Right. And that, that tends to put the people on the hot seat, right? Right, yeah. That's a lot of political pressure. <laughs> right. Now, he sent Braccio da Montone to enforce this decree. Fortunately for Anton, the Pope's strong arm was his buddy. And Montano let the Bentavoyo leave the city peacefully. Shades of later events. Braccio agreed to let Anton Galeazzo hold Castel Bolognese, a territory he had captured during the schism, as, as a fief of the Pope. And Anton retired there with his family in 1420. With the Pope in his enclave came the exiled Canatoli, however, and with the Bentavoyo close by, they did what people do in these situations. Tempers and feuds were renewed. The Capulets and the Montagues <laughs> yeah. got their swords. And in 1423, uh, there was conflict, and Anton Galeazzo was forced to leave the area. Now, Anton Galeazzo had started life as a lawyer, uh, but he decided that he that wasn't really his lifestyle, right? So he sort of threw off the cloak of the academic and of the lawyer it became a condottiere. He joined the Brotherhood of Arms where he learned to play at the trade of war. Seeing Anton's polite plight 
Rinaldo Dalbizzi came to visit and offered him a job and a place to stay in Florence. Anton Galeazzo was a charismatic individual and was well-liked by everyone in Florence, especially the famous Cosimo de' Medici. And in this time, he was able to smooth over his rocky relationship with the Pope, thanks in large part to his newfound friends and influence. In 1434, the political situation in Bologna took a turn for the worse, though. The Atmaltraversi-aligned Canatoli family overthrew the papal government with the backing of Milan. Big shocker. And <laughs> committed the city to the Visconti, whom everybody in Bologna loved, right? Right. Right. <laughs> Anton Galeazzo, with Cosimo di Medici's support... Put together an army. Remember, this is on behalf of Florence, who is not a fan of Milan. These guys are big rivals. And they attack. They hurry to Bologna in the name of the Pope. Now the attack didn't go so good. But uh, neither did the Canatoli Visconti lordship, and papal power was restored in 1435, and the Bentivoglio were allowed back for their efforts and loyalty to the church. While Anton Galeazzo's triumphant return to Bologna was greatly received with flocks of citizens rushing to the street to watch his re-entry into the city and his home being provisioned beforehand by old family friends and loyal servants alike. The popularity and appeal of the Bentivoglio name made the papal legate of the city very uneasy. Making Italians very uneasy at this time <laughs> was a really bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, these are not people that express their uneasiness through microaggression. <laughs> no, this isn't just like, this guy makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so he did what he does, which is on the December 23rd, uh, 1435, after hearing mass with the suspicious papal legate, the legate and Anton Galeazzo exchanged friendly words and attempted to clear the air between them. And after the visit, Anton Galeazzo set off for his palazzo, probably whistling along in a good mood. As he was leaving the Palazzo del Comune, he was grabbed by a band of soldiers, though, waiting to ambush him at the base of the stairs. And uh, they were not there for hugs. They beheaded him on the spot. As was written in an epitaph by Fileno della Tuata, it seemed to be that the priests, that he was too much loved. <laughs> and so Anton Galeazzo <laughs> slipped this mortal coil and left the world. That's right. <clears throat> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. He so. was he was too handsome, too charismatic, and just too dynamic of a human being to he continue to exist. He was just too Bentivoglio to be allowed to remain in Bologna. That's but right. now an ordinary family might have given up on politics at this time, right? That's and right. I thought, eh, we'll head out to the country. We'll do some farming put our feet up, drink our wine. But the Bentivoglio decided to take another crack at the game. That's you want right. to tell us about that one? Absolutely. So now we have to talk about Hannibal I, Bentivoglio. So the new papal government in Bologna didn't last too long, less than three years. The Podesta, uh, Baldessari de Afida, uh, was put in charge of the city and was universally hated. And when I say universally hated, I mean... Contemporary chroniclers who were supposed to be unbiased reference this man as being the most cruel and tyrannical individual that ever lived. (laughs) 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 
So, uh, the Bolognese allies in the city decided to take action, and on the morning of 1438, uh, Raffaello Foscari uh, rode out of the city to meet in secret with Gerardo Rangoni. You might remember that, or be familiar with a name like that, right? That's uh, Guido, uh, Guido Rangoni's great-grandfather, uh, Lord of Spilimberto. Uh, they agreed to send letters to the condottieri, uh, Niccolo Piccanini in uh, Milan, um, or Piccanino, excuse me, uh, asking him to come to Bologna to avenge the death of Anton Galeazzo and help them reestablish a citizen government. So Piccanino agreed, and on 20th May, 1438, the Bentvaleschi, uh, many of whom were, again, butchers, opened the gates of the Porta Stra San Donato and uh, let Piccanino's army into the city. Uh, the papal enclave in the city offered little resistance, and on June 1st, the city was liberated. Piccanino took possession of the Palazzo Yay. del Comune, yeah. <laughs> and Raffaello Foscari was named governor of the city. Uh, once Piccanino left the city, Foscari and Rangone called on Hannibal Bentivoglio to return to the city, which he did in 1438 with characteristic aplomb, to the cheers of massive crowds of the excited Bolognese citizens. The 25-year-old Hannibal... Um, took after his old man. He was handsome, he was charismatic and charming, and spent the last three years fighting under the Angevin banner in Naples, um, proving his valor as a condottiere. Uh, he was the leader the Bolognese people wanted, needed, and they bestowed upon him the title of Gonfaloniere of the Aziani. And they all lived happily ever after. That's right. Everything the, went well, and, and Bologna <laughs> became a paragon of peace. <laughs> <laughs> and the Bentavoglio lived in peace in Bologna for forever. Right, Joshua? Yeah, so the good feelings didn't last. What? <laughs> as Raphael Foscari didn't really see Hannibal Bentivoli as anything more than a soldier, and he wanted to have a majority say in the decision-making of Bologna, but... Wait, wait. Raphael Foscari had an idea of who he thought would be a better person to run Bologna? Well, himself, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. So, to foment these assurances, uh, Foscari, uh demanded that Hannibal marry his daughter, even going so far as to say he would send him back to grooming horses as a soldier of fortune if he didn't comply. So not only insulting Hannibal, but also insulting his station as a condottieri to right. the point where he was nothing more than a groom for the condottieri he was serving, which is pretty harsh. But um, Hannibal didn't take that too well. He responded as any Italian gentleman of the age would. He and 15 of his close compatriots went down to a cafe near Foscari's house. And then when they saw Foscari take to the street, they went out and shared a few pleasantries and then murdered him. Hmm. Sounds like something right out of The Godfather. Yeah, so afterwards, uh, he went to shine box. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he went to Piccanino's re uh, representatives in Bologna um, and laid low for a while, unsure of how the Bolognese people would respond. But fortunately for Hannibal, he was handsome and charismatic and charming, and they really loved his dad. So the Bolognese people basically decided that instead of holding Hannibal accountable for, for Foscari's murder, uh, they gave. They made Hannibal a hero for killing Foscari. It's not um, entirely inaccurate. Right. They accused Foscari of trying, attempting to become a tyrant. Um, so uh, just to make sure the coast was clear, Hannibal went, met, went to meet with Piccanino, and that meeting went well. 
So well, in fact, that in the following year, in 1441, Hannibal married uh, Danina Visconti, a cousin of the Duke of Milan. For the Bentivoli of Bologna, a new era was about to begin with the backing of Milan and the return of the city's first family. Uh, life and liberty seem to return to Bologna at last. Have you heard oh, that so before? now is when they live happily ever after, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. This, <laughs> but last it did not. Oh. <laughs> Bologna became the inconsequential focal point of northern Italian, Italian politics in 1441. So, Filippo Maria Visconti um, had extravagant dreams of uniting northern Italy, Italy under his banner, um, or at least under the banner of Milan, uh, while the other great powers, namely Florence and Venice, did everything they could to curb his ambitions. Right, Recognized- so this is basically all of Italian history is this like triangular circle jerk between yes. these three powers and the moment one gets any juice the others team up against them that's right yes yep one rises and the other crabs pull him out of the bucket right yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah so recognizing bologna as the keystone in this conflict and further milanese expansion uh filippo maria made a, a, pa- a power move and sold the right of overlordship to the pope which basically meant that if florence or venice decided that they were going to try to take the city of bologna then they would have to fight both milan and the papal enclave which they definitely did not want to do so um and and of course he vowed to always be the protector of bologna if any enemies namely florence or venice should approach so this new arrangement was the leverage that Niccolo Piconini needed to make himself Lord of Bologna, because when he was in the city, he was like, man, this city's super nice. You guys got canals <laughs> and running water. This I wonder is- who should run the city. <laughs> so Guess his name he- rhymes with Ficinino. <laughs> <laughs> so he struck a deal with the Pope in secret, and in March of 1442, entered the cities to start sowing the seeds of a coup. In the fall of that year, his son, Francesco Piconino, showed up outside the city walls with a Milanese uh, army under the guise of protecting the city from external external threats. Yeah, very clever. But the thing is, is it really was a clever plot because Francesco was close friends with Hannibal Bentivoglio because they had served as condottieri together. So, Francesco came to the walls of Bologna and was pleading that he was ill and asked to be allowed to enter Bologna because at this time, cities didn't allow condottieri to stay within the cities because in the 1300s there was this thing where when they let these condottieri armies into their cities next thing you know the condottieris were the lords of the city city. yeah yeah it's probably a pretty good policy to keep the mercs on the outside of town that's right so they made them stay outside of the city walls um so they allow francesco to come in and while he's in the hospital hannibal and his uh fellow bentovaleski go and visit Francesco every single day in the hospital to make sure that he's well. Um, it's, it's at this point that the young Piccanino told his friends that he needed a change of scenery, that the heir of Bologna wasn't agreeing with him. Sounds Wherever. familiar. <laughs> and asked them to join him at uh, San Giovanni in um, Prochetto. Marozzo's hometown. Yeah. So Romeo Pepoli, Giovanni Fantuzzi, uh, Gaspari Malvezzi, and his son Achilles and uh, Hannibal Bentivoglio accompanied him to the country estate. Uh, when they arrived, in Piccanino's men had Hannibal arrested, along with Gaspari and Achilles Melvetsi. Oh, maybe it was like some BDSM thing. Yeah, maybe. You know, clapping him in chains. Yeah, maybe. The, yeah, probably not, the, though. Kind of the suspicious thing here is that Papoli 
and Fantuzzi were allowed yeah. to return to Bologna. <laughs> well, there goes that theory then. <laughs> so uh, this is where the story gets like crazy, uh, super crazy. You want to take it from here? Yeah, I was hoping I'd get to do this part. All right, with the arrest of Hannibal, Niccolo Piccinino declared himself the Lord of Bologna in the name of Pope Eugenius IV. And he garrisoned the gates of the city with loyal Piccinino soldiers from his son's army. Meanwhile, Hannibal was thrown into the dungeons of Castello Verano in Parmese territory. That's uh, the area around Parma, where the prosciutto comes from. Sorry, his companions Gaspare and Achilles Malvesi were kept in a different castle, so the prisoners couldn't conspire with one another. Well, these Piccininos are no dummies. On May the 10th of 1443, Genesio de Borga San Donino came to Galeazzo Marascotti with news of Hannibal. Genesio knew the castellan of Varno personally, and a few days prior, while Donino was visiting his friend, the castellan, he had sat down and they had played a game of chess together uh, with the captive while the jailer slept in a nearby room. Hannibal had asked Donino to tell his friends in Bologna that he was in Verano, in chains, and he needed their help. Marascotti got the details of the fortress of Verano from Donino and the nature of the surrounding countryside, and he got two of his close friends to help him rescue Hannibal. Their attempt failed. Undeterred, Galeazzo was, was a pretty badass dude himself. Galeazzo Marascotti started recruiting men for a second attempt. He convinced his brothers Tadeo and Genesio and two other well-known cloth merchants from the city, Giacomo Malavolti and Michele da Logano. The fifth person in their party was, a, was Guido Rangoni's grandfather, Gerardo Rangoni, who joined them on the road to Parma when they passed through Modena. So it's these five guys are going to plan to break into this castle and free Hannibal Bentavoglio. They hid on a chestnut wood under the cover of a storm. Then they crept to the wall with a ladder that they had pilfered from the local monastery, and they used a makeshift rope that Galeazzo fabricated and scaled the walls of the fortress. Genesio was the first to breach the wall. He climbed down to the main gate and opened it for his fellow conspirators. They made it to the Castellan's tower, but they hadn't brought a thief with them, so they couldn't pick the lock on the gate. See, those robes <laughs> are useful to have in any party. <laughs> Always bring a lock-picking tool. Always bring a rogue. <laughs> yeah. And so they were forced to wait until dawn. With the sun creeping slowly into the sky, they were alerted by the sounds of the castellan calling to his watchwarden to open the gate. Galeazzo leapt out at the watchwarden and strangled the man until he passed out. They left the warden with Michele de Legiano as the other four conspirators climbed the tower. But when the man came to, the guy that they had choked unconscious, because they didn't kill him apparently because they were nice guys, he cried out. And then Lojano had to put a dagger in his throat, which he probably should have done in the first place. The castellan was waiting in his chambers to be attended by his warden when he ended up being attended by Galeazzo Meriscotti, sword in hand, along with Rangoni and the other Meriscotti. The castellan surrendered, and they bound up his hands and his mouth, very important, and feet, then hurried down into the cells where they found Hannibal Bentavoglio. Marascotti lifted Hannibal in his arms in a big embrace before the others came in and they released him from his fetters, from his chains. The conspirators quickly rounded 
through the Castellan's towers and collected the rest of the guards, binding them up and bringing them to the war- women's quarters where they had the Castellan and the dead watch warden. Realizing they couldn't escape the fortress in daylight, they laid low in the room while they awaited the cover of darkness. So they're, if I understand this correctly, chilling out in this fortress with a dead dude and a bunch of captives. And these guys are such slackers that nobody bothers to come and investigate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. I guess it was... <laughs> well, I, I guess I guess the, the watchtower, or the, I guess the Castellan's tower, was something that basically had its own unique garrison. So they were okay. basically left alone because nobody thought that somebody would get that far. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So when the hour of Angelus came... They rang the bell in the tower, then removed the clapper from the bell so no one could alert the watch after they left. They told the remaining prisoners that they were taking the castle and one other from them as hostages, and if anyone raised the alarm, the two men would be killed. They managed to escape the fortress, but they were then held up by the swollen Taro River at Fornovo. Right, so the storm that had covered their entrance was now holding them back. Out of necessity, they had to let the hostages go. And they forded the river, but uh, that was a pretty tough thing for Hannibal. Hannibal hadn't been well taken care of. He hadn't been well fed as a prisoner, and so he was pretty emaciated. And he pretty much used the last of his strength to make his way across the river. For the remainder of the trek through Parma, the conspirators would have to take turns carrying Hannibal on their backs. Needing rest, they stayed in a peasant's hut after explaining to the family that they were soldiers in Piccinino's army. The next day, they were able to procure a horse and at last made it to Spilamberto, that is Guido Rangoni's future house and Gerardo Rangoni's house at the time, also the would-be base of the attack in 1507. There, they sent letters to the leading families of Bologna telling them of their success. All the leading families of Bologna rallied around Hannibal, including the Canatoli, and together they shouted, Viva la Libertà! They stormed the Palazzo del Comune where Piccinino presided. Piccinino's men barred the doors and they started raining a hail of arrows into the piazza. Galeazzo Marascotti and Romeo Pepoli took their men into the nearby Palazzo dei Notai, Notai and del Podesta and returned fire. A breach was made in a side door of the palazzo. And the Bentavoyeschi poured in, that is, the supporters of the Bentavoyo, Hannibal among them. They overpowered the Piccinino's guards, and the crowd erupted in a great cheer. Then started demanding that Hannibal throw Francesco Piccinino from the top of the tower. But Hannibal refused this request, citing his friends the Malvezzi, who were still in custody. And then they lived happily ever after. That's right. Right? That's right. Always. Yes. Always. No. Hannibal immediately reached out to Cosimo de' Medici to ask for protection. And on July of 1443, Venice, Florence, and Bologna signed a pact cementing a five-year league between the three cities, guaranteeing their mutual defense. Among other notable acts, Hannibal recalled all of the Canatoli exiles for the help the Canatoli family provided an ousting Francesco Piccinino. So there's nothing like a foreigner coming and taking over Bologna to get the people forgetting the little differences, right? That's right. At last, with the city reunited, they removed the last of Piccinino's forces from Bologna, and then they got ready for the backlash. The outing of Piccinino and the deal struck by Hannibal 
reshuffling of the northern alliances was met with measured vengeance by the Visconti forces. Luigi de Verme had a fairly sizable army in Castel San Pietro Terme, just a few miles southeast of Bologna. And after receiving the news of Francesco Piccinino's capture, he moved on to Medicina. Remember that place with the good medicine. That's right. <laughs> then to Cento, where he tried to capture Ludovico Bentavoglio, but failed, thanks to the heroics of one Alberto Pio. Then on, he went on to Manzolino, Piumazzo, and Castel Franco Emilia. Hannibal rode out of Bologna, where he was met by an army of Florentine and Venetian allies, among them his friend Gerardo Rangoni. They moved to cut off Del Verme's aggressive raid and finally met up with him at Castel San Giorgio di Piano on the morning of August 14th. The battle would last the entire day. Del Verme had 3,000 cavalry and was faced with an army of about 7,000 mixed units of Bolognese troops and their allies. Del Verme's captain, Paolo de Roma, is forced to retreat at the head of Hannibal's assault. And a second squadron of Del Verme's cavalry is blocked by Pietro Navarino. His army crumbling, Del Verme rushes to the heart of the battle. But even his presence is not enough to inspire his failing troops. He fights one-on-one -on -one with Simonetto de Castel San Pietro. But he can't overcome him. So Del Verme takes to his heels and flees. All told, the Milanese has 2,000 of their horses captured, 236 men worth a ransom captured, and 11 condottieri captains along with their entire baggage train. Now that Milan has fairly been beaten in the field, the Visconti opted to consolidate their losses and exchanged prisoners. On the 20th of August, a Bolognese enclave met with their Milanese counterparts on the border of Bolognese territory and Modena. Along which river? The Panaro. The Panaro River. <laughs> Francesco Piccinino was handed over for Achille and Gaspare Malvezzi. The moment Achille's foot touched Bolognese soil, he shouted, Sega, 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 to proclaim the triumph of the Bentavoglio. Peace prevailed in Bologna. <laughs> Until the weathering of time and the tedium of peace rekindled old feuds. <laughs> And here to tell you about it, Joshua Wiest. So the Canatoli became jealous of the favor that Hannibal had showed toward the Mariscal. No. Oh, yeah, I know. Jealous? Jealous. Yeah. You know, How un-Italian of them. <laughs> they were like, but you invited us back, and we were supposed to be the second family. We were supposed to do this together. <laughs> and then it, but you keep, you know, favoring the guy of the, who, you know, who literally who saved you, you from prison. <laughs> You know, so they got a little upset. So, you know, Hannibal recognized this, and he tried to make peace because he, he was a, seems like a pretty good leader, right? So, in a gesture of good faith, Hannibal stood as sponsor for the infant of the son of uh, Francesco Gisileri, a member of the Canatoli faction. After the ceremony at the cathedral, Hannibal moseyed down to the street, arm in arm with Gisileri. They headed to Francesco's house, where the Canatoli were hosting a banging after party. Something behind them caught Hannibal's attention. He turned to look over his shoulder and saw armed men were following them. Then he pulled away from Gisileri, ran to his ran at his attackers, but he was stopped by a dagger that was plunged into his chest. 
Balasardi Canatoli pulled the dagger free and thrust it into Hannibal's chest two more times for good measure. Then a moment later fired off an arquebus uh, to signal to the rest of the Canatoli faction that Hannibal was dead. Murder and mayhem ruled the streets of Bologna once again. A story as old as time. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding, man. So when the shot rang out, Galeazzo Mariscotti and his brothers were ambushed, and all three of his brothers were killed, but Galeazzo was able to fight off their attackers and escaped. He managed to rally the Anziani and bring the measure of control back to the city, which was actually pretty amazing at this point, because he literally convinced them that, um, you know, as chaotic and as much killing as, as was going on, they still had control, and... Uh, they believed him, which I, <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> it, but, uh, so he was able to reassure him. And then they ran, rang the bell of, uh, San Giacomo rallying the Bentvoleski to arms. Uh, the people of Bentvoleo took to the street shouting death to the traitor who slew our sweet Hannibal. While Canatoli had succeeded in eliminating Hannibal Bentvoleo and members of the Mariscotti family, all they brought about was the demise of their own house and the enshrinement of the Bentivoglio as the first family in Bologna. The only problem was that Hannibal's son, the rightful heir, Giovanni II, was just two years old. Now, imagine this. You're the son of a poor blacksmith. There's a rumor going around that you're the supposed bastard of some noble guy. Um, but it's just a rumor. Yeah. Right? Right. And then <laughs> one day you're just taken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A guy in a cloak shows up and puts you on his horse shows... and says, we're going to take you to a tailor. <laughs> right. It's like the beginning of a fantasy novel. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So in 1445, the improbable became the possible. The son of a poor blacksmith, the supposed bastard of Ercole Bentivoglio, the brother of Anton Galeazzo, was put in power in Bologna. Uh, Santi was born to a poor Tuscan girl in the village of Papi, uh, where he was fostered by Angelo de Cassese? Yeah, Cassese. Cassese. Oh, whatever. It's a hard one to pronounce. That is a really hard one to pronounce. All right, so the story goes that Ercole Bentivoglio was serving as a condottieri uh, for the local count, Francesco Guidi, and uh, had a son with a girl in the nearby village. And it was later adopted by the Cassese family. I'm just going to run with that. When the, when the Count Francesco Guidi was forced to flee his castle in uh, Castino, uh, he took the young boy Santi with him, which was kind of suspicious, right? Like, I mean, he, he just, weird. yeah, he just goes and grabs his young, like, poor yeah. blacksmith kid and, like, you're coming know, with like, me. Come on, dude. <laughs> come on. The Dark Lord is coming. <laughs> So the Count told them the story of his patronage, and uh, they were struck by how much... Uh, or so, he, he when he was in Florence, um, he met he ended up actually meeting a contingent from of, from the Bentivoglio who were visiting the city, um, and the Count told them the story of his patronage, and they were struck by how much he looked like his father. Uh, Hannibal, who is now deceased, but at this time, they were, you know, back in the past, even came by to see the boy and promised him that he, one day he would uh, find his rightful place in Bologna. Uh, so when Santi and his uh, and the and the count returned back to Poppy, uh, Santi ended up getting this really awesome apprenticeship with uh, this guy, Nuzio Solosme. It was a wool merchant. Yeah. <laughs> How do you say that? <laughs> uh, I think it's Solosme. Solosme. All right. Or so Solosme, but whatever. 
So, and it was Solosme who put the boy back to, uh, at work with Neri Caponi, um, Cosimo de' Medici's biggest political rival in Florence. Uh, Neri denied having any knowledge of San, uh, Santi's patronage, but it was speculated that he was trying to leverage the boy in case he ever became politically relevant. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's believed that uh, Neri groomed Santi, believing that he would that having a son of Florence at the head of Bologna would fulfill his greatest foreign policy ambitions. Now, this is where this gets really suspicious, right? Because Neri ends up, Neri is, he's kind of like the universal spider of Florence, right? Okay. Even though, even though Cosimo de' Medici is kind of like the, the guy, uh, Neri is kind of running this, this sort of side quest on his own. That's okay. just, just to make Florence like the single greatest power. So every once in a while, Neri and, and de Medici end up working together, but and sometimes they end up butting heads and a lot of times it's butting heads, but Neri is, he's, he's a pretty powerful dude. And the fact that he grabs hold of Santi and then just starts grooming him, highly suspicious, very suspicious. It's quite a power play. Right, so this became reality in uh, 1445 when a Bolognese envoy named Circola de Ascoli arrived bearing the, um, the credentials of the Sedici uh, and told him he was taking Santi to, Bento, uh, to Bologna. Uh, Circola was a loyal servant of Anton Galeazzo and had narrowly escaped his master's assassination. He was always and would remain a loyal servant of the Bentivoglio. He was basically their guy. He was a spy, a diplomat, and a knower of secrets, and he was well aware of Santi's ancestry. Are we gonna ever find out more about this guy? Oh yeah, we're gonna this talk guy about this guy. Really cool. Yeah, he. Right. Yeah, because I. I mean, I think we need to. We probably need to do an episode going deeper into Bentivoglio history than this goes. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, cool. but yeah, we yeah we do need to talk more about this guy because he even stays on under Giovanni um, until his Ooh. death. Oh yeah. So we definitely got to hit that. Yeah. So Santi didn't want to leave Florence. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I mean, don't want to be a prince. I mean, who, I just want to be a wool merchant. <laughs> I want to be a real boy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who could blame him? Don't make me eat the tagliatelle. <laughs> his grandfather, his uncle, and his cousin were all murdered. <laughs> Take that, Kennedys. <laughs> But he also didn't want to bring shame to his mother, which obviously bringing light of his dubious mm. origins would bring her shame. Uh, so he confided these fears and his close friend, because remember, he's being uh, sort of fostered now by the Florentine court. And uh, so he ends up becoming really close friends with uh, Giovanni de' Medici. Oh, and don't mix up this Giovanni de' Medici with Giovanni... De Medici della Bandanere, the famous condottiere. Yeah, no, they're That's not for some time in the future. Right, or Giovanni de Medici that becomes Pope Leo the Tenth. Right, they're yeah. they're not. There's too many of these Johnnies of Johnny Medici's. <laughs> hey Johnny, hey Johnny, you want to be Pope? <laughs> so this is uh, this Giovanni de Medici is the second son of Cosimo de Medici, and this led to a fateful meeting with Giovanni's father. So Cosimo called Santi to counsel and encouraged him to embrace his destiny, saying. If you are a son of Ercole Bentivoglio, you will desire to go to Bologna and play the part which benefits your noble birth, or befits your noble birth. If you are a son of Angelo de Cassese, you will stay in your shop in San Martino and be content with small things. Got it. So either you're going to go somewhere and be killed, or you're going to stay home and be unimportant and enjoy your life. 
because nobody knows about you or cares. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Santi settles his debts in Florence, says goodbye to his adopted father, and is given a new wardrobe. And this is an extensive wardrobe. I, there's there's documentation of his wardrobe. And Ooh, Was that Ghiridachi that had that? Yeah, well, pff, oh, who else? He goes into those details. <laughs> he really does, man. It's, it's intense. <laughs> so, on 11th November, 1446, he left for Bologna and he arrived on the 13th. Senti's political career was marked by clever diplomacy. Uh, he was, as Neri had hoped, always a loyal son of Florence. Uh, his first action was to make peace with the Pope, and in 1447 signed capitulations to the papacy that would allow for a shared rule of Bologna. It was a move that would play major dividends in the future, when Pope Nicholas V became Papa. Nicholas was loyal to Cosimo de' Medici, convenient <laughs> and, and had attended the university in Bologna convenient where he served as a beloved cardinal uh, and, and actually like he was one of the most beloved cardinals in Bologna I'm pretty sure they built a statue of him um, wow. his next move was to take part in large part thanks to the invitation from Cosimo de' Medici in the great northern alliance which saw Florence, Milan now under the Sforza thanks to Cosimo de' Medici and Venice so I think we need to pause here for just a second and talk about the uh, suspicious Canatoli murder of Anton or of uh, Hannibal Bentivoglio, the overthrow of the Visconti in Milan by the Sforza, and the dealings of Nicholas V becoming Pope when he was loyal to Cosmo de' Medici. <laughs> I'm not familiar with that story. Basically, all of Cosimo de' Medici's political, uh, all of his political rivals die within about a 15-year period of one another. Wow, must be dangerous to be against him. And maybe God's on his side. Yeah, and Medici favoring loyalists end up in power in each of those places. Wow. Yeah. God was definitely on his side. He was. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's pretty fascinating but just kind of shows the uh power and reach of Cosimo de Medici. So, as a result of this alliance, uh Santi became very close with Francesco Sforza and through their dealings, Santi was offered a chance to deepen the bond between the cities through his betrothal. So, in 1554, Santi wed Genova Sforza or Guinevere Sforza as she's uh so named in our story tying his rule to the now powerful Sforza dynasty with bonds of blood together they had a daughter Costanza who married into the Mirandola family and a son Ercole who would go on to be a famous condottieri and the Florentine pieces wars but poor little Ercole he was famous for the wrong reasons uh Machiavelli was he <laughs> Machiavelli actually wrote a book about Ercole's incompetence, and it's called The Art of War. <laughs> I, I, was it about his... I, my reading of it, it wasn't his incompetence. It was, why don't you run into that breach where all those guys are going to kill you? And Ercole's point is like, after you, Machiavelli. <laughs> that, that, right, that Pietro Monti was holding. So let's you know bring this yeah. back to our Hema roots a little bring bit. Bring it back to the Hema roots. Yeah. yeah. Whenever I read Machiavelli, it's a little like, uh, oh, look, here's a civvy who thinks he knows all about the military and is going to tell these military guys how to do their business. That's true. That's true. I mean, he, but, you know, the influence and the scope of Machiavelli's Art of War is so profound in terms of the fact yeah. that it really, it's it's actually really impressive. But He is the most overrated historian of the Renaissance, I'd say. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. But, yeah. you, but he's you accessible. can't deny his influence. He's very accessible. You no, you cannot it. deny his influence. 
So now Sante would go on to have a long, happy life, right? Yeah. So Sante would go on to live a short but diplomatic life <laughs> and died of. Hold on, let me get my air quotes together. Yeah, air quotes. Illness. <laughs> At the tragic age of 36. Wow, man. Life in the Renaissance is hard. You know, when you happen to be on a throne that somebody else wanted or in a position of power, you know, you tended to die of natural illnesses at strangely young ages. And he succeeded by the real son of uh, Hannibal Bentivoglio, uh, the now um, 20-something-year-old Giovanni II Bentivoglio who then marries Sante's wife, Guinevere Sforza, as we know, which is just right. a little weird. Well, so let's clarify something. Sante was 25, or 20, 21 or 25. I can't, I, I said it up here. I think he was 21. Sante was 21, and when Guinevere ended up coming to Bologna, she was only 20, she was only 14 years old. Right. So, right. I mean, I mean, yeah, she was still young and fresh. Rumor has it that she was banging Giovanni before Sante even died, anyway. Um, Which is probably why Sante she died. Was, uh, it's quite possible that <laughs> Guinevere decided to help him along. She was a sword, so you know they they had that sort of Milanese approach to life. Yeah, they did. They did. So, yeah. So that's we can we can spec only speculate on how natural the natural illness and natural death of Sante Bentavoya was. Yeah, so now we're just gonna you know, the remainder of our story is gonna kinda show up throughout Maestro Wars. Um we kinda cover Giovanni the second, um, and a few of his highlights in uh episode one of the the Maestro Wars. So if you're interested in kinda continuing this story from that point, uh you should definitely check that out. <clears throat> but there are a few points to be made. In 1482 and 1487, excuse me, Giovanni II Bentivoglio's personal chef, Master Zeferano, invented tagliatelle pasta. That's the traditional pasta that is served for ragu bolognese, or yeah. as we call it, bolognese sauce. That's right. And in 1494, Giovanni expanded the canals to the point where they could move 200,000 tons of material a year through the passage of 2,500 ships in the canals of Bologna. And these are not big rivers that they're working with here. That's really impressive. Yeah. Small boats. All right. So what we're going to do now is we're just going to kind of roll through notable events that happen in Bolognese history. Do you want to take this, Stephen? All right. It's 1480, and the first game of football was played in Bologna. That is, what do you mean by football? Is that the Italian game of calcio? Yeah, that's where, you know, you kick a ball with your feet. Got it. So soccer. Real, real football. Real football, okay. And Niccolo Rangoni, the father of Guido Rangoni, took part in that game. In 1515, Leonardo da Vinci came to Bologna with Giuliano de' Medici and Pope Leo X, where he met the king of France, Francis I. This fateful meeting would see Leonardo leave Italy for good to join the court of Francis I. On the 14th of December, 1566, the famous Fountain of Neptune was completed. It had taken two years to dig and construct the massive cisterns that fed the fountain. In 1585, Giovanni Popoli, the cousin of Fabio F Popoli, Giovanni della Gocchia's patron, was murdered by the Inquisition as a warning to the Popoli family. <laughs> Hopefully they got the point. In 1662, Tortellini and the cello 
were invented by aspiring Bolognese mines. And in 1770, Amadeus Mozart moved to Bologna to begin his musical studies. In 1796, Napoleon decided that Bologna would become the capital of the Cisalpine Republic. One of Napoleon's nieces would marry into the Popoli family. In 1815, with the fall of Napoleon, the city returned to the papacy. Sad. Yeah. In August 1848, the Bolognese drove out the Austrians. Then in 1860, the city was annexed by the Kingdom of Sardinia, which in 1861 would become dun, 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 the Kingdom of Italy. In 1887, an archaeological expedition in the city identified that there were 180 medieval towers in Bologna. Unfortunately, this expedition was a result of rapid progress, and the city decided to destroy three such towers as a result of the survey. The early 1900s would see more expansion and more destruction of historical landmarks. The base of eight towers were destroyed by 1914 and 1909. The Bologna Football Club was founded. Ducati Motorcycle Company started in Bologna in 1926. And in 1963, Vroom Vroom Lamborghini was founded in Bologna. All right, let's talk about the gates of Bologna. Yeah. Because much of the story is going to revolve around these gates. Yes, it will. You want to just... Uh, you want me to just go with this? Sure, yeah, hit it. All right, sure. All right, we have the Porta Castiglione, also known as the Canal's Gate, because the Savena Canal, which was the hydraulic power source for the city's economy, used to flow right beside the gate, before flowing then into the town. It was built in the 12th century, rebuilt in the 1400s, styled as a maculated rampart. We have the Porta San Stefano. Hey, Real quick, let me define what yeah. immaculated rampart is for, for yeah. people. So basically, a maculation is a floor opening between the supporting corbels of a battlement through which stones or other materials such so as... you can drop stuff. Yeah, you could drop stuff. Boiling water, you know, quick lime, Raindrops hot sand. My head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can be dropped on the, the heads of, of defenders. Yeah, so... Or attackers, attackers, you mean. Yeah, attackers. attackers. Yeah, yeah, don't be there. Built in the 13th century, the Porta Santo Stefano was severely damaged during the siege of the city in 1512 when Cardinal Giovanni de' Medici was besieging the city before the daring Gaston de Foix swooped in and forced the papal forces to flee. Oh, Gaston! <laughs> the Porta Maggiore, that is Italian for main gate. The gate of honor... This is the gate that guarded the Via Emilia. That's the big highway that Bologna is on. and was the main triumphal passageway into the city. It was a gate of kings, of popes, and of condottiere. Located where the Strada Maggiore, that is Main Street, it goes, changes into the Via Mazzini. It was first erected in the 13th century and further fortified by Pope Julius II in 1507. I wonder why. Hmm, I wonder if it had anything to do with those pesky Bentavoglio <laughs> or that pesky Guido Rangoni. We have the Porta San Vitale. That's the gate to Ravenna, Romagna, and the Adriatic. It was built in 1286 with an adjacent barracks and a tower. No real cool stories come to mind about that one. We have the Porta San Donato. This gate led to the entrance 
of the university portion of the city. It was built in the early 13th century. It was equipped with a drawbridge until it was sealed in 1428, but reopened in successive decades. It was flanked by a maculated tower. So who wants to stand under there? We have the Porta Mascarella, the gate that represented the former medieval walls of Bologna, first erected in 1300. This gate once had a drawbridge until the 15th century when it was sealed. The tower of this gate had a maculated rampart. The Porta Galliera, the hostile rock gate, this gate protected the road leading to Ferrara. In 1330 to 1333, Cardinal Bertrand de Puget ordered that a castle should be built to further bolster the defenses of this gate. Portalame, first constructed in 1334, this gate had two drawbridges, one for carriages and one for pedestrians. It was located on the Via Lame, where it meets the Via Zanarde. Again, no particularly striking cool stories about this one, but... We do have lots of good stuff about the Porta San Felice, the war gate, the Bolognese gate opening to the west to their good friends in Modena. That was the main passage for armies leaving the city to fight in northern Italy, traveling by the Via Emilia. It was erected in the 13th century with a maculated tower and drawbridge. It went through further defensive reinforcement in 1508. Can't understand why. Wonder why. <laughs> Inside of the gate were the city's barracks and attack house, right? So this is the main gate on the west side of town, and the Porta Maggiore is the main gate on the east side of town. We have the Porta Zaragoza, the pilgrim's gate, or the holy gate, because in the 17th century, it was the final stage of the pilgrimage towards the sanctuary of the Blessed Virgin of St. Luke, where parishioners could conclude their journey from Rome in Colle della Guardia, this gate was constructed in the 13th to 14th century with a drawbridge and a corresponding moat. We also have the Porta Sant'Isia and the Porta San Mamolo, ancient gates which once belonged to the third circle of the city's defenses and were part of the ancient city walls built in the early 13th century. The once great La Cercola at the city center had a great complex with a captain's house, a keep, moat, and a drawbridge. And the Porta San Momolo is the gate that was seized by Scapi and his conspirators in 1507 until they were driven away by none other than Hugo Popoli with his long, flowing, blonde locks. That's right. All right, why don't you tell us about the canals of Bologna, Joshua? All right, so one of the defining features of Bologna is something that I think a lot of people wouldn't think about. Um, when we think about cities like Venice or Ravenna, we think about canals, uh, or at least like using waterways to trans or transit through a city. Uh, we don't really think about Bologna. I mean, frankly, Bologna is landlocked. It's not a river city like Ferrara or Padua. Um, but the city of Bologna managed to create an immensely diverse and innovative economy around its canals, which propelled it to unprecedented affluence in the early medieval period, well into the Renaissance world. The city is fed by three estuaries, uh, the Aposa from the north, the Savina from the east, and the Reno River, which is a tributary of the Po from the west. And in 1070, the Bolognese built a conduit that channeled the Aposa into the city from north to south. In 1176, they created a channel to draw the Savina into San Raffaello uh, before it passed through the Porta Castiglione, or Castiglione and provided sustenance to the eastern half of Bologna. 
1183, they built a massive dam at Casalecchio. Hey! <laughs> to divert the Reno into the city. Now, why do we keep having all these battles at Casalecchio? Casalecchio. <laughs> mm, I wonder why. So this is like the railroad into and out of Bologna because before the train, carrying stuff by land was pretty exhausting, but floating it down river or upriver was pretty chill. Right. So they created nearly five kilometers of sluice to feed it into the northwestern quadrant of the city. The first canal has fed the defensive features of the city, like nearly um, nine kilometers of moat, which ran in front of the city's gates, which also provided a steady supply of fresh water in case of a siege. So it was pretty cool. Um, as the city grew, however, uh, so too did the infrastructure around the canals. Aqueducts, underground sewers, and drains all became part of the city's dynamic network. The intricacies of these systems meant that roads needed to be paved with cobbles and, or bricks. Metalworks were hung in the ports of entry and capped reliefs in the roads. This, dynamis this dynamism paints a Bologna, which to many contemporary listeners would probably seem like a modern municipality. And for all intents and purposes, it was. It was certainly ahead of its time. The canals cleared refuse from the city and kept it clean from much of the clutter and waste that would pile up by many accounts in the 14th and 15th century chron chroniclers. Bologna was a clean and sparkling example to Italy and Europe as a whole. In contrast to the city that took it over, the stinky city on the fetid swamps right. of Rome. Yeah, I mean, it's like comparing New York City to basically any city in the Midwest, I imagine. So the Savina branch of the canal fed into the affluent portion of Bologna, um, this pro providing luxuries unseen since the Romans and medieval Bologna. Um, the palazzos of the greatest Bolognese families had amenities like running water. Once the Savina passed the great palazzos of the Society de Note, uh, it flowed into the city's economic district where factories were built along the canal and used hydraulic power to, to um, uh, use the hydraulic power it provided to dye silk and wool. Because of the natural chemistry of the water, Bologna was actually known for producing fabrics with a vibrant red, which is super interesting. The other industry that developed in this quadrant of the city was paper milling, which was convenient for the officers and notaries of the great families dealing in government affairs. So would have this been the river that Morozzo would have had his uh, mill on? I guess we can't know that. We can know that, actually, because I know... Okay. Yeah, give me two seconds. It's a good question. Uh, in 1531, he received permission to construct a water wheel drawing water from the Reno River. No. From the Reno. So let's talk about the real industrial powerhouse of Bologna, then. Yeah. So... Um, the real industrial powerhouse of Bologna, <laughs> however, was the mighty Reno River. Uh, entering the city through the Porta La Grada, the massive canal entering the city uh, cut into two channels known as the Sega della Agua and the canal. The, and then. Cavadizzo. The canal Cavadizzo went in, uh, north and east. The other, the canal della Moline also went north but was a pet project that the millers had built um, because they wanted to also tap into some of the power of the reno river which was, of course was the most powerful of these because you have to understand like the savina is a, basically a super weak river that runs through the adriatic um and then the it's other like what we would call a creek basically yeah and the Aposa is even weaker so 
Um, but the Reno is where, you know, they actually had some, some water mite. So, uh, so they had these two basically diverging, uh, canals that were surrounded on both sides, uh, by mills. So, um, thanks to the size of the canals, the entire length of both flank, both banks were filled with mills. Some of the more prominent Bolognese industries at this time were sawmills, uh, where they would float massive trees from the Apennines down the Reno River and run them through their mills. Uh, machines for fabricating arms, making brass containers, shaping and polishing armor, uh, fulling cloth, and spinning silk thread. Those were basically the primary industry of the city of Bologna, those, those things right there. So, Sounds like it was like a, the industrial era already in Bologna. Exactly, and we're talking, you know, 1400s. mid 1400s. Yeah, the magnificence and unparalleled power of the canals awed the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III when he visited the city in 1452, and of course the Bolognese considered their canals and the industries that developed around them a closely guarded state secret. An example of this was when two men in 1538 tried to export some of this mill technology to Trent and were executed for treason. Oops. Yeah. So that's uh, that's kind of the... Wow, that is a deep dive into the, his- the history of Bologna. <laughs> yeah, all in honor of our friend St. Petronius. That's how we do it here on L'Arte de l'Arme. That's right. So... I guess we we hope you guys enjoyed this uh, St. Petronius Day episode, and uh, we hope you have a wonderful St. Petronius Day. All right. Take care.